absolutely, absolutely beautiful day today, and I'm glad that you're here. It's good to have you here. Good morning. And those of you in Skagit, thanks for joining us. Those in Boca Raton, I don't know what it's like down there, but this is why we endure 10 months of rain. You would not believe how unbelievably wonderful it is up here. Hey, those of you joining us on live with the streaming live, live stream right now, we're so grateful that you've joined us today. And I know that some of you are out of town and check in. Some of you live out of town. And this week on Friday, I was at the hospital seeing Gene Kurz, who's been in the hospital for a couple weeks, and uh, was visiting with Gene in the ICU um, area, and he said, uh, I will be uh, tuning in on my phone on Sunday morning. So Gene, we just want to say we're praying for you. Glad that you're joining with us this morning as we look at, uh, continue to look in Romans. Hey, if you were not here last week, I don't often say this, if you were not able to be here last week, I want to strongly encourage you to go online and watch or listen to that sermon. Not because I'm such a great preacher, but because Romans 6 is that good and there is so much good stuff, and if you missed it, I think maybe there's some things that, that God would have for you, uh, so I want to encourage you. If, if you're new with us, we're in the middle, uh, almost the exact middle, of a 14-week series this summer going through the book of Romans, and as I've mentioned, uh, Paul, as I said last week, Paul sets this thing up in Romans 1 through 5. He talks about what God has accomplished, past tense done, what God has accomplished in the gospel, and then in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, which is where we are right now, it's what he is accomplishing, present tense, ongoing, uh, in, in our progressive, in our lives, what he is accomplishing through the gospel in us. Here's the amazing thing. As I said, Romans chapter 6, that we looked at last week, is a great, great chapter of Scripture. Great truths in that. Roman cha Romans chapter 8, which we'll start next week, we're going to spend two weeks in that. Romans chapter 8 is absolutely glorious. I mean, it is one of the... One of the high points of all of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, is an amazing chapter. So you have this great chapter 6 and this amazing, glorious chapter 8, and in between you have chapter 7, which is where we are today. Romans chapter 7 is like sandwiched in between these beautiful things. It's like, it's like a head cheese sandwich. It's like, what's this in the middle? And Romans chapter 7 that we're going to look at today could be, if not the most, Top five, anyway, one of the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, before this service, I had an individual say, I have read Romans 7 over and over again this week, and I hope you can bring some clarity to me. Romans 7 is a very difficult chapter. It's very confusing. At times, it appears to be contradictory. It talks about our relationship to the law. It talks about the relationship of marriage. It talks about our relationship with Jesus. And if you think about Romans 7 as a relationship, you would have to put in your Facebook status, it's complicated, the whole thing. Let me give you a for instance. Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 these words. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. To which you either say amen or, huh? What? What's that about? And, and, and I think, that okay, this is just in my little messed up head. I think as, as Paul is, is, is speaking these words, you know, uh, Tertius is transcribing them. I'm thinking Tertius gets at the end and goes, hey, hey, wait a second, Paul. Are you sure you want to say that? I mean, can we wordsmith this a little bit? And he's like, no, 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 that's good stuff. They'll get it. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. But whatever. So he just keeps writing. If you ever 
read through Romans chapter 7 and find yourself scratching your head saying, I don't have a clue. I don't know what he's talking about. This is weird to me. You're not alone. For, for instance, Simon Peter, who was one of Jesus' inner circles, you know, Peter, James, and John, was there with him at the Mount of Transfiguration, was there when Jesus looked at Peter and says, you are the rock, Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Peter, the one who preached on the day of Pentecost and thousands became followers of Jesus. Peter, the first pope of the church. Peter, who's this leader who walked with Jesus. He wrote some letters to churches in Asia Minor. These were churches that Paul had planted, churches that Paul had written letters to. He writes to them, and he gives them these words in 2 Peter. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. That's a good thing. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of, of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. St. <laughs> Peter says, I don't get it. Maybe he'd gotten a copy of Romans and he's like, you know, hey, listen, you're going to get this letter that he wrote to Rome in chapter 7. I got nothing. Pops and buzzes. I don't know what he's talking about. It's hard to understand. So if you find yourself a little bit confused, you're not alone. You're in good company. You're, you're with the first pope of the church. All right? Uh, there's a couple in our church. I asked permission to share this. Uh, Travis and Kelly Van Coten. Travis and Kelly, in some ways, are polar opposites. When it comes to theology, Travis loves it. Loves to dig in, loves to ask the probing questions, loves to wrestle the hard issues down to the ground, loves to cross-reference and, and, and probe what does he mean and what does this mean and how does this play out. Travis loves to get in there and wrestle with deep issues of theology. Kelly, on the other hand, if Travis says, Kelly, what do you think? Kelly's response is always the same. Bottom line, Travis, Jesus loves me and I love him and that's good enough. Now, some of you are in Travis's camp. You're like, can't wait, man, Romans 7, let's get in this. Let's get after it. Let's roll up our sleeves. Some of you are in Kelly's camp. You're just trying to find your happy place. In your mind right now, you're singing, Jesus loves me. We'll endure the saying. We'll get through the sermon. And then we got Romans chapter 8 next week. Here's the beauty that in Romans chapter 7, there's something for those of you who are in Travis's camp. And there's something for those of you who are in Kelly's camp. And for those of you who are in Kelly's camp, you have to go through Travis's camp to get to your camp. So just keep singing, Jesus loves me. And we'll get there eventually. All right. Now, here's what I do want to say, not only about today and not only about Romans chapter 7, but in all of, of Scripture. Do not, let me caution you, do not let what you don't understand in Scripture keep you from meditating, delighting, applying, and obeying what you do understand in Scripture. Don't let these things negate all of that because there's so much that you can understand, that you can apply. Then, then focus on those things. When it comes to, to Romans chapter 7, there was a man um, who was an author, he was a theologian, a scholar, his name C.H. Dodd. In speaking about Romans 7 specifically, C.H. Dodd said these words, we should try to forget what Paul says and find out what he means. <laughs> this phrase right here, it's not, it's not biblical, it's just C.H. Dodd. This has been so freeing for me. 
And today, this is our goal, this is our attempt, not to answer necessarily what he said, but try to get in there and find out what does he mean, and I'm going to give you my best shot at it, and I'm not sure that I've got it right. In fact, Paul may be up in heaven going, yeah, he doesn't have a clue. When he gets here, I'll really set him straight, and which will be great, because then we'll fully understand Romans 7. But I want to kind of help us maybe not get stuck on the wording, because some of it really is awkward, but to try to go beneath that and find out, What is the meaning here? What is he trying to convey? What is it that we need to learn in this? Now, a little background again. Paul is writing a letter to a church that he didn't plant, to a church that he has not visited. It's in Rome. And the church in Rome is made up of believers who came out of a Jewish background but discovered that Jesus was the Messiah. But it also has people that come out of a non-Jewish background. And Rome is a very, very permissive society. The culture, which is very, um, very hedonistic, filled with a lot of sinful activity, behavior, and mindset. So you have this church, this follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus, and it's an interesting mixture because you have with Jewish background and non-Jewish background. And so Paul comes, here's a little quiz for you, and he offers this, tells about this righteousness that is four words. Yeah, good. You might find me asking this throughout the rest of the summer. A righteousness that is from God and is by faith. And so with that, he confronts some questions that he knows are going to come up. So one of the questions is, if it's from God and if it's by faith and it's not about what I've done, it's not about any of my righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ, then, as we looked at last week in chapter 6, can I just go for it with the sin thing? And he says, no, 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 you, you died to sin doesn't mean you just kind of go after it. Then he turns his attention because he's got this other group of, of people that come out of a Jewish background, who come out of a very law-centric background that can often lead to legalism, and he refers to them as well. So now he turns his attention, and I believe chapter 7 is written for those who are from a Jewish mindset, who the law meant everything to them. The law was like the DTR. It was the d- defining the relationship of their, their covenant with God, It was so important to them, and he addresses these issues with them. So, today we're going to swim a little bit in the deep end. Are you ready? Okay, Romans chapter 7. If you have a Bible, tablet, you have a phone, you want to turn there. Romans chapter 7. I'm going to summarize the first part, and then we're going to get into some of the more meaty stuff. But in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, probably, possibly, one of the the meatiest verses in, in this whole book. He says this, so my brothers... You also died to the law. If you were here with us last week, he talked about you've died to sin. You're dead to sin. Now he's using some of the same terminology, but he says you've died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that's Jesus, in order that, here's the result, that we might bear fruit to God. Beautiful verse. And in the first uh, six verses of Romans chapter 7, he uses this this analogy, this illustration, this metaphor of marriage. Now, the teaching is not on marriage. He's using it as an example to illustrate a spiritual truth. And the fact is that when you enter into a marriage, you enter into a binding covenant with another individual. Till death do you part. And during that lifetime, you have this this marriage covenant. There's this, this commitment, this binding commitment. But if one of the partners of this marriage dies, then the, the obligation of that commitment and that covenant no longer exists. That death dissolves the legal obligation. 
So he, he just kind of says, just kind of paints this picture. And then he, he takes the metaphor. He doesn't mix his metaphor, but he contorts the metaphor, really. Because he says, so you were in kind of this binding relationship with the law, but you died to the law. Which if you went straight across with this metaphor would mean the law is free to go on and get remarried or whatever. He does, he does this weird thing. He says, you died to the law. What that means is there's no longer this binding legal obligation you have to the law. Now you are free to remarry, to rejoin, to belong to another. And he says, and now you are not bound to the law. Now you belong to another, and that other is Jesus Christ, and there's life there, and there's liberty there, and it's not about the legalism of the law. There's this connection with Jesus, to which the Jewish mind would then begin to ask, like we asked last week with the, the non-Jewish mind, what good is being good? They would ask, then what good is the law? Do we even need the law? Should we even follow the law? What can the law do? Why do we even have the law? What's the law capable of doing? What is the law not capable of doing? And for the rest of the chapter, he begins to address and begins to confront those questions that the Jewish audience would, would understand or would be asking. And he begins to say, let me tell you about the law and where it is good and what it's good for. So I want us to take a look at that and see what he means by what he says. So why do we have the law, and what good is it, and should we even worry about it? The first thing is this, is that the law defines sin for us. The law defines sin for us. I, I use this uh, example. If, if out in the county there was a brand new road that was put in, they brought in all the pit run, did all the stuff, they paved it, and you drove on the road. Actually, you drove on it, and they hadn't put the lines on it yet and they hadn't put up any signs yet. So there's a lot of questions on this road. You really don't know, is it a one-way road or is it a two-way road? And if it's a one-way road, which way is the one way? And if it's a two-way road, is it two lanes or is it three lanes or is it four lanes? And if it's two lanes, is there a passing lane or is there a double yellow line? And what is the speed limit? But you're driving on this road and there's a lot you don't know about this road, but you're driving and you're having a good time. Then, they come in, they put in the lanes, they put in the lines, they put in the signs. And all of a sudden you realize, man, I was breaking four laws and I didn't even realize it. I mean, I was driving the wrong way. I thought it was a one way. I was in the oncoming traffic. I, I was passing cars and, and I see now that there's a double yellow line and I broke that law and I was doing 35 and, and, and the speed limit is 25. And, and you begin to see all these laws that you broke, but you didn't know it. But now that the laws are there, now that the lines are there, now that the, the signs are there, now you begin to understand, man, I really messed up. And he says, the law defines sin for us. Verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? He always does that. I kind of like this. Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. He alludes to this earlier, I think in chapter 4, where he says where there was no law, there was no, no, no trespass. Is that, that the law helped him understand where sin was. When I began to understand the law, then I knew, oh, this is where I'm falling short. This is where I've, I've dropped ball. This is where I've missed the mark. This is where I'm you know, being rebellious here. I didn't even know I was being rebellious. It defined the law for him. And what's interesting is, 
to find the sin for him. What's interesting is that he uses the word sin, not sins. He's not just talking about a specific sin, but he's talking about something that's more encompassing, something that's, that's larger. So it began to help me understand about sin. See, the, the rabbis had scoured through the, uh, the Old Testament. They had scoured through what is referred to as the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And they had identified not just Ten Commandments, 613 laws that are listed in the law in those first five books. 365 of those were prohibitions. Thou shalt not, do not, stay away from those kind of things. 248 of them were instructions. You shall, you will, you must. And Paul, if you remember, as a Pharisee, he had memorized those laws. In Philippians 3, when he's talking about his own, his own uh, personal, uh, I don't know, credentials in the flesh, he said, when it came to, to righteous legalism, I was faultless. I had memorized those laws. I knew those laws. I kept those laws. I was meticulous about those laws. So he's not saying, hey, there's some, a couple, you know, and I, I missed number, you know, 472 or whatever. He said, no, 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 there, there's something beyond just a specific sin. It's not these events. It's something greater, something that's more encompassing. And then he uses a for example. And I find this interesting because he singles out one of the Ten Commandments. Because he says this thing about coveting, which coveting is desiring and longing for something that belongs to someone else. It's not just saying, oh, I would like to have a wife someday, or I would like to have a cow. It's saying, I want your wife, and I want your cow, and they're not the same. Okay, just want to make sure we're clear on that. So it's this covetousness, and he points out this of the Ten Commandments, which is interesting because I think if there was a poll taken in this room saying, name one of the Ten Commandments, 99.4 of you would not say, thou shalt not covet. It's the one we always forget. He chooses that one, and I think it's not random. I think he does this very specifically because all of the other the other commandments, the other nine, they're things that if you break them, people can see, they can tell. Others will know that you're breaking them. This commandment, however, is internal. You could keep all the other commandments and break this one and no one would ever know. And Paul, who had spent his entire life meticulously following all the external com uh, uh, conformity to the law, began to realize I could do everything right on the outside and still be sinful on the inside, and no one would know it but me and God. And he says, and the law helped reveal that to me. This is why Jesus would say in Matthew 7, when the, the woes, I think it was Matthew 7, maybe not, I can't remember, Matthew 20, it doesn't matter. In Matthew, when he's confronting the Pharisees, he says, you Pharisees, you know, you hypocrites, woe to you, you teachers of the law. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look so wonderful, but inside are filled with dead men's bones and everything unclean. You all look good on the external, but internally there's this rot, there's this death, there's this sin within. And Paul all of a sudden realizes, I have kept all the external laws, but there's something deeper. There's a sin, not a specific, there's a sin thing deep within me. And that brings us to the second point of what the law is good for, and that the law the law reveals sin to us, and it might be more accurate to scratch out the word to and put the word in. The law reveals sin in us, the sin inside of me. That 
that the law doesn't just give a cerebral academic objective, here's a list. Here are the do's and don'ts. The law becomes a mirror by which we look at ourselves and we see the dirtiness, the brokenness, the darkness within us. It's interesting, if you have your Bible open to, to Romans 7, if you're following around, quickly look back at verse 5. In verse 5, he says that sinful passions were aroused by the law. That's bizarre to me. Because when I think about sinful passions that are aroused in me, it's not from reading Leviticus. I, but he says, he says, there's something about the law that stoked the fires of my desires. There's something that happens within me with the law. So he says this, verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Now let's take C.H. Dodd's uh, recommendation here. Let's forget what he says and try to understand what he means. Let me try to help you understand what he means. If you ever see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. If you've ever seen someone put in a brand new driveway or a brand new uh, sidewalk and they've done all the troweling and then they leave. If you've ever been out on some logging road way up on the top of a mountain and you see this fence with a barbed wire and it says, keep out, stay out, no trespassing, do not enter. There's something within us that wants to touch that paint, that wants to put our initials in that wet concrete, that wants to say, could I climb over that fence and get over that barbed wire without being scratched up, without being hurt, without being caught? There's just something within us that when someone says, hey, don't do this, or someone says, I want to do that. When I was a little guy, we had finally, my sister was four years older than me, we had finally gotten old enough that our parents could leave us home alone. This was December in the uh, early 70s, and we lived in this parsonage right next to the church, and my parents said, we're going to go out for a couple of hours. We'll be back. Have your dinner. Watch TV, whatever. And then my mom said, this was December, remember, said, stay out of our room and don't look under our bed. <laughs> the last thing I had in my mind before she said that was to go into the room and to look under their bed. But when she put down the law, suddenly it's like, they couldn't get out of there fast enough so I could get in their room and look under the bed. See, this is, and it's not just kids like Christmas that do this. Every couple years I go to Israel. And on our trips to Israel, when we go up to the north there in the Golan Heights, there's a spot. We go every time. There's this lookout and you can look to the north and you can see into Lebanon. You can look to the east and you can see into Syria. And you can look down below and there's a, a UN camp and you can just see it. it's, it's a lookout area made there. And up behind that on the mountaintop is this Israeli military defense situation there. And our guide always says, hey, here's you know, this to the north, here's this to the east. Take all the pictures you want. Do not take a picture of the military defense. And it's, you know, it's, it's radar dishes and, and towers and, and all that kind of stuff, part of their, their military defense. Inevitably... Every trip with grown adults. Someone will come to me later that day, later that week, 
or after we get home and say, hey, Bob, check this out. <laughs> Got a picture. It's not even pretty. It's ugly. It wouldn't even frame it. You wouldn't put it on Facebook. It's just a dumb picture. Why is it that someone does it? Because someone said, don't do it. And there's just something broken enough, just something dark enough within us that when someone says, don't do this, there's a part that says, I might want to do that. We come by this honestly. We think about Adam and Eve. They are created in a perfect world with a God who gives them everything that they could ever want or need. Everything is fantastic, and they're given a garden. And we're not talking about a 12 by 12 plot. You ever thought about what the Garden of Eden must have been like? And think about something as large as like Stanley Park, waterfalls and animals and trees and all this. And he says, you can have it all, enjoy it all. Oh, by the way, there's one tree. I mean, there's acres and acres of trees that give them everything they could want for nourishment, for delight, for, for, for everything they need, except one tree. And what do they do? Let's go check out the tree. It's just a part of who we are. Uh, St. Augustine, in his confessions, talked about it when he recognized this. Looking back on his life, when he and some young friends went and stole pears from a farmer's tree. He says, as I look back on it, it's not that, the, that we were hungry. It's not that these were better pears than the pears we had. It's not that we needed pears. In fact, we stole them, and most of them we threw to the pigs. And he began to analyze, what was it about it? And he said, it was the enjoyment of the forbidden for no other reason than it was forbidden. And Paul comes along and he says, when the law came, it began to reveal this dark brokenness inside me. That a God who only always gives us what's good and what's best, when he says, hey, accept these, no, say no to this, there's something within me that says, I want that. And, and, and with Adam and Eve, it was like, and you will be like God. I, there's this part of me that wants to be God. I want to be able to do this and get away with it, to have my own little omnipotence on there. It says, and the law, the law not only defines sin for me, but it reveals sin to me. And here's another thing about the law, is that the law cannot transform us. The law can define the sin. The law can point it out in us. But it can't change us. It can't fix us. It's like a doctor who diagnoses a situation in your life. Can tell you, this is the disease you have. He can even tell you, this is probably how you contracted the disease. He can tell you, this is the course the disease will run. This is the inevitable end of the disease. But that doctor has no remedy, has no cure. He can tell you all about the disease, but he can't fix the disease. He says, and the law can tell us all about sin. It can show it to us, but it can't change us. So he writes this. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and sin always deceives. And through the commandment, put me to death. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting in this, in this chapter how often he comes back to the law. In fact, I think it's 23 times. 23 times in this chapter he refers to the law. Remember Paul. He was raised in a good Jewish home. They weren't converts to Judaism. They were Hebrews. They were born into it. They were multi-generation. Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. What that means is from his earliest age, 
he would have been taught the law. The first thing, as a little, little boy, that he would remember, the first thing he would memorize before any nursery rhyme, before any song, the first thing he would memorize would be the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He would have been saying that every morning and every night for, for before he could even remember. He would have been raised as a young Jewish boy, and he would have memorized the book of Psalms. As a Pharisee, he would have memorized the entire Pentateuch, all first five books of the Bible. Some of you have not even read them. He would have had them memorized. And not only that, but then he goes, and he is, he's like a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's, he's, he trains under like the rock star of all Pharisees. And the law was everything to him. The law was beautiful. And the law was this thing that was supposed to bring life. It was the, the defining relationship of God and his people. And then Paul realizes, he realizes that the law can't bring joy. And the law can't bring peace. And the law can't bring life. And it can't bring love. And this very thing that was supposed to breathe life into God's people brought about death, which then would make you ask, so is the law bad? I mean, if that's the case, if all it can do is is define sin for us, identify it within us, and it can't change us, then do we need it? Is the law even bad? And he says, no, 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 no. The law exposes how sinful sin is. Which, which seems to kind of be a weird statement. It exposes how sinful sin is. It's like this. I think sometimes we know sin is bad, but sometimes we downplay it. We water it down. We sugarcoat it. Yeah, I missed the mark. Yeah, I messed up. Yeah, I failed. Yeah, I fell short. Yeah, I've got a weakness in this area. Not recognizing how insidious and how dark and how sinister and how evil sin is. And he says, law helped expose how wicked sin actually is. So he says this. So then, the law is holy. I mean, these are the very words of God. Holy, set apart for God's purposes. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy. It's righteous. It's, it's, it's this right standing with God. It's good enough for God, and it's good. God only always gave the very best. He says, here's this law spoken from our God, the Creator, It's good. It's righteous. It's it's holy. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. He says, don't blame the law. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What does he mean? What is he getting at here? And what he's saying is this, that God from his very lips gave something that was supposed to bring life, that was holy, it was righteous, it was good. And sin pollutes it. Sin desecrates it. Sin corrupts it. Sin taints it. And sin takes what God has set apart to be good and life-giving and wonderful and turns around and uses it as an instrument of death. It's not the law that's bad. It's sin is so insidious and so wicked, it will take God's very best and turn it around to work against us. 
And then he begins to realize, he begins to put all of this together. He begins to realize that the law is a beautiful, good thing that God had given. But he recognizes that within himself, it points out the sin in his own life and that the law can't change him and that he, and that he, that he gets frustrated. And you see this, this mounting frustration where he gets to this point where the law is a beautiful, good thing from God. It's holy, it's righteous, and, 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 and yet I've got all this sin. And this famous verse, verse 15, where he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Have any of you ever thought, felt, or said anything like this at all? Yeah, we understand. Paul says, even if you don't get Romans 7, I get your, your situation. I understand the human condition. I know what this is like. It's frustrating. Why do I, you can just see him going, ah, why do I do this? I don't, I don't get it. I told you this, I think a year or two ago, that a friend of mine has a son, and this young man, he is a great kid. He really is. He's a great personality. He's fun to be around. He's funny. He's just a, a, a neat kid, and he's got a sensitive heart. But he's easily influenced. And because of that, he's made some really poor choices with people around him. Some choices that actually have gotten him into a lot of trouble. And, and my friend said when he would confront his son, he would say, you know, why do you do this? And he, he really would have this genuine, genuine remorse like, I, I don't know. I just, I, I know I shouldn't and, and, and I wasn't going to and then I, I just did. And, and, and he really is broken inside. So the son made a sign for himself and he put it up in his room. And it said this, a sign that he could see every single day. Don't do dumb stuff. Just as a reminder, as he starts every day, don't do dumb stuff. And Paul comes along and he says, I've got five books. I've got 613 reminders that I have memorized that say, Paul, don't do dumb stuff. And I do it. I don't get it. It's frustrating to me. In verse 18, he follows up and says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I, in my heart, I want to do the right thing. And then he begins to talk about these, these two natures that are at work within him. The sinful nature. Some of your translations will say the flesh. And yet this nature that of God, of life, and the spirit, and how they're both at work in his life. You see him talk about this throughout other writings. I mean, in Galatians, when he talks about these two natures and, and, and which direction they pull. He talks about the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy and drunkenness, and the like. He says that's, that's the sinful nature pulling this way. But, but the fruit of the Spirit on this side is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And he says, I recognize that the sinful nature, so I mean, there's nothing good in that at all. And I want to do this, but this side kind of keeps pulling me down. And you see this tension that he's wrestling with. It's the tension between the I and the it. Between who I am and who I've been created to be and, and what I want to do. And this is the true me. This is the I. And then there's this it. There's this other sinful nature thing that he's wrestling with. And, and he's saying, you know, I, I deal with this on a daily basis. Of having these, these two pull. You remember last week. We talked about how positionally in Christ, we will never be any higher than we already are. We are, we are 
clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our status, our standing, as our position in Christ is here. But our practice, our character, our behavior, our words, our relationships, our mindsets, our, our, our attitudes, our, our, our priorities are here. And there's this gap. And he says, and this is who I am. This is the true me. And yet there's this down here that, that pulls away from me. Verse 20, he says this. Now, if, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. To which I would say at the surface, that's a cop-out, Paul. You're just trying to excuse it. You're just saying, hey, wait, this really isn't me. It's just sin living within me, so I can't be held responsible. He is not trying to justify anything at all here. He's not rationalizing any, he's not excusing any choice, any behavior, anything that he's done. Not at all. What he's saying is, there's this ongoing difficulty in my life. And this is who God has created me to be. And this is who I want to be. And this is what I long for. And this is... And yet there's this other thing. There's this, this hideous other nature. There's this, this part of me. He said, I'm not excusing it. I'm just telling you, this is who God says I am. This is who I'm striving to be. But I'm still, I'm a sinaholic here. And I fight with this all the time. And this is where I want to live. But this draws me back again and again and again. And this is the real me. This is who Jesus died for me to be. And yet there's this, this hideous other thing that still has its grip on me. And then he gets to this point, and this is where it can be a little bit confusing because he uses the word law, and he uses it five or six times, but he has three different definitions for law as he uses this. I mean, there's law, the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible, God's law, that, that thing, there's a law that's a principle, like the, the law of reaping and sowing is a principle. It's a law. And then there's a law that's a power, like the law of gravity. It's a power. And so he uses law over and over again, and you have to kind of discern which one is he talking about. So he says this. So I find this law at work. This principle is at work in my life. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I can't shake it. It's like a shadow. There's this, this principle at work in, in just in life. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Now he's talking about the Pentateuch, his word, God's way, God's will. Deep inside, I long for I love that. I delight in that. That's what I want. But I see another law, another power at work in the members of my body. Waging war against the law, the power of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law, the power of sin, at work within my members. I mean, how graphic can you be? Waging war. So there's this battle. The question has been answered. I have the righteousness of Christ. The conflict remains and continues. Who I am in Jesus that was sealed, that was done, that was on the, his work on the cross. That's finished. But there's this battle that I wrestle and I wage every single day. And the war is this sin that is so insidious, wants to take God's good work in my life and drag me down, wants to take what God is doing in my life and defeat it and destroy it and hinder it. 
and the frustration he gets in the midst of all of this, this conflict. He says, so I get it, that the law is a beautiful thing. It's holy. The commandments are holy. They're righteous. They're good. But there's this sin thing inside of me. And he comes to this conclusion, and he just cries out, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? What a wretched man I am. I mean, I can keep all the external laws, but inside I know my brokenness. I know my darkness. I know my propensity. I know my sinaholism. I get it. What a wretched. And, and where's the hope? It's, it's like I said before. Until we get to this point, until we recognize the jacked upness of each of us, until we see how bad the bad news is, until we understand that, we will rec- not ever recognize how glorious and how great the good news is. That I am inadequate on my own. I can't do it on my own. Not even if I tried to follow and keep the law, I can't do it on my own. It's hopeless if it depends on me. Completely inadequate. So he just cries out, what a wretched man I am. And this, this frustration, who's going to ever save me? And he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That, he says, is the good news. You know, many of us grew up, I think probably the best known song in the world is Amazing Grace. John Newton Spent many years in the slave trade and many years in a very, very ungodly lifestyle. Gets turned around and writes these words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a what? He got it. Saved a wretch like me. You know, I was thinking about in verse 3 of that, that famous hymn. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come. I always thought about that of, you know, well, he was always crossing the Pacific and there's you know, a lot of troubles at sea and his life was truly threatened and that was probably what he was talking about. But I wonder if maybe that wasn't what he was talking about. Maybe it was the dangers that came because of the lifestyle that he led. Maybe it was the toils that he put himself through because of his own sinful choices. Maybe it's the snares that he set for himself and he intentionally walked into. Maybe it wasn't about his physical life. Maybe it was about something much deeper, much more eternal. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe this far. And grace will lead me home. Isaac Watts, another song, maybe not quite as familiar, said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? I love that. Why don't we sing that anymore? In fact, in some of the newer hymns, they've taken the word worm out for such a one as I. He says, no, no, no. On my own, in my own sinful nature, I'm a worm. And yet the sacred head of Jesus Christ would wear a crown of thorns for a worm like me. What good news. The law, the law pointed out how inadequate I am. My only hope here is with Jesus. My salvation is not in the law and in keeping the law. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
My hope is not in how good I can be. It's in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And my transformation does not come about by keeping the law. And this is where he sets us up for next week. It's in Romans chapter 8. He says, it's because of the Spirit of God at work in me. That's the only thing that will change me. That's the only thing that will transform me. So I think, I think he gets to this point where he looks at all of this and he says, Travis, we can wrestle with theology for the whole chapter. But at the end of it, Kelly, the bottom line is Jesus loves you and you love him. And in the midst of this deep theology that's confusing and hard to understand, he comes back with the Sunday school answer for all questions. And he says, the answer is Jesus. That's the answer. That's where the hope is. That's where the salvation is. That's where the transformation is. That's what you hold on to. That's the good news. You've died to sin. We're not called to live with license to just go sin and do what we want. You've died to the law. We're not called to live this legalistic lifestyle. You've died to sin. You've died to the law. And you've come alive in Christ. And in Christ there is life. And in Christ there is liberty. And in Christ and his spirit, there's the power to be transformed and to be changed and to narrow this gap from who you are in Christ and who you are becoming through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 8. Don't miss the next two weeks. All right. I've asked, I'm going to ask our worship team to come back out. I've asked them to close with a specific song that we've been singing recently. And I want to read you some of the lyrics because so often it's easy in songs to just start singing them and, and not really hear the, the third verse says, The fear that held, uh, held us now gives way to him who is our peace. His final breath upon the cross is now alive in me. And if you know that word breath, pneuma, the spirit, this, Jesus breathed out his last, Jesus breathes his spirit into us. And the refrain says, By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat the resurrected king is resurrecting me. In his name, in your name, I, I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Stan, let's sing this truth found in Romans chapter 7, and then I'll close this in prayer.